I'm going to read today's passage, and it is Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 41. Um, in your pew Bibles, right where your Connect cards are, uh, it would be on page 845. So I'll give you a second to turn there. And again, that's Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 30, going till verse 41. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he is killed, after three days he will rise. And they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they went to Capernaum, and when, they, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, who gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, some of you may be thinking like this is kind of a strange passage to read right after we had our Easter service. So we're going to have to do a little shift of our mind. Last week was a post-resurrection. We're entering back into the Gospel of Mark. So this is pre-resurrection. So I know some of you may need to kind of reshift some things in your mind. Uh, let me pray before we start. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would speak to your church through it. Pray for your blessing upon our fellowship with one another, our communion with you, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> what we find here in uh, this section of scripture is uh, Jesus teaching his disciples about his death once again, because they don't quite understand what's going to happen. And Jesus was going to die on the cross as we celebrated uh, that as well as the resurrection last week. And he, he knows what's coming. Jesus knows what's coming. And he tells his disciples repeatedly of this plan, but they still don't understand it. So let's jump right into our verses starting in 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Now let's take a closer look at why or where Jesus is addressing himself as Son of Man, where that comes from. And um, the reason why I want to take a little look at this is because there's, it's quite a purposeful title that Jesus has called himself, and it refers back to the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7. So in Daniel 7, starting in verse 13, it reads this, 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus used this title, Son of Man, to describe himself, but the disciples had a really difficult time matching up what they knew about Daniel chapter 7. All that victorious speech of what was read there with what Jesus said, that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Because that doesn't quite sound like dominion. That doesn't sound like glory. That doesn't sound like a kingdom where all people, nations, and languages should serve him. It does not make sense to them. And so this was a really difficult thing for them to picture that Jesus was also a suffering servant who lined up with Daniel chapter 7. But the thing is, is that they are not contradictory. That suffering, that rejection, that death is the way of Jesus Christ's dominion, glory, and kingdom. And they had an idea with what Daniel 7 was to look like, but they weren't able to line that up with other scriptures like Isaiah's prophecies and what he wrote about Messiah, the Son of Man. And so here's one excerpt of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. Let me read this for us. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that he should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not." Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and make intercession for the transgressors. And it was hard for them to make sense of Daniel chapter 7 and Isaiah 53. 
Back to Mark's Gospel, verse 32. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. They were afraid to ask Jesus because uh, they've been consistently wrong, right? And the more understanding they gained, the more they didn't like this picture that was being painted. When Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That does not seem like Daniel 7. Not to them. The glory of the kingdom. We want that. Jesus, we want to be at your right hand and your left hand. We want to be with you. We, you know, we want to be right up there with you. We want the dominion, the glory, the kingdom. We don't want to deny yourself and take up the cross. That we don't want. We don't want that whoever saves his life will lose it. That does not seem glorious at all. We don't want that. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Unbelievable, isn't it? This is crazy. After all Jesus taught them and lived out in front of them, Jesus talked about suffering and rejection and death, and these guys are arguing with one another about who's the greatest. Pride is so ugly. It's so ugly. And there's no, no freedom in pride. Prideful people are, are caught up with being completely self-absorbed. And humility, on the other hand, that's freeing. It's freeing from yourself. Not having to worry about significance, about standing, about power, and, and all the while experiencing gladness and joy and delight. And he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Well, Jesus just kind of puts an end to their argument pretty quickly. It's just with one sentence, really. Jesus puts an end to it. He's just brilliant at things like this. And it's not just lip service with Jesus. He, he lived this out. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. He, he gave his life as a ransom for many. And our nature is, is not to be others-centered. Our nature tends to be me-centered. And that's why whenever you take a photograph, who do you look for? Right? You're looking for you and how you looked and your smile if you closed your eyes and all this kind of stuff. You're looking for you. And so Jesus used a child as an illustration of this. And, and we have a, a cute little video that we, we filmed uh, several weeks ago of our children here. And so we want to share that with you really quickly. What's your name? Zeke. Zeke. What's your Just name? Josiah. Just Josiah. What's your name? Mackenzie. Mackenzie. Actually, my name is Josiah. Oh, not just Josiah, just Josiah. Okay. Josiah. Hi. Would you like to participate? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you just put mud on his eyes. Oh. And washed off the mud, and then you could see. Wow, that's pretty amazing. So he wasn't blind anymore. Yeah. You could see, yeah. 
Really? Yeah. Would anyone know of other things that Jesus does? He calms down storms. Oh. So if it was, if it was raining and lightning. And waves. Yeah. And waves. And then yeah. blue skies again? Or maybe purple. Maybe some orange. <laughs> or or some pink. Yeah. Who do you think who do you think made all those colors? God. God? Yeah. Oh, how do you know that? He made everything. He did. Questions about anything in life? Can I go get my mom? I have a lot of questions. How does God love me? So he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them. Now, this was a, a young child to be taken into Jesus' arms. We, we kind of envision that probably around that age. And this child does not have significance. This child does not have power, status, control, does not have any of those things. And some may argue that children actually do. Um, but let's think of the context in Jesus' time. We're not talking about today. And, and a time when children in Jesus' time were not thought to be the center of the universe, as many are believed to be today. Very different. But regardless of what we may disagree on in regards to the status of children, we can all agree that young children are dependent and they're helpless. And in the context of Jesus' day, they were really low in terms of importance and social order. That's why Jesus used a young child as an illustration, because everyone knew he would be looked at as weak and as insignificant. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. When we receive people who others deem insignificant, weak, lowly, needy, helpless, we receive God. How else are we to be able to receive a suffering and rejected Jesus that the disciples are having such a hard time doing? Someone who was looked upon so insignificant and so lowly, who didn't look like a victor until after experiencing his sorrow and his suffering and betrayal and death. But how often do we find ourselves jockeying for position and looking for significance and looking for control and looking for status and all those other things on the other spectrum, dependence, helplessness, weakness, insignificance, those are, are bad words in our world. Those are bad world, words in our society, but these are not so with God. These are good things. And so we see God more clearly when we're in those states of being, don't we? When we're helpless, when we're suffering, when we're in pain. That's when we see God most clearly. And we, we tend to be closer to God when we are needy than when we are living in, in, in plentiful abundance, aren't we? Now you notice that God doesn't ditch the disciples here even though they're way off on their understanding. That even in our pride, God still sees the helpless little child in each of us. 
And we have this gracious, merciful, long-suffering, and patient God, one who desires to save us from our pride and our rebellion, our mistrust, our, our confusion by taking upon himself whatever separates us from God. All right. After this argument, the disciples had it out with one another, and then Jesus used this child as an illustration of, of what he means. You'd, you'd think the disciples would finally get it, that they'd finally get the picture, but they don't. Off to our next story. As a group, they don't, and individually, they don't. And then here comes John. John's coming down, and, and, and John probably thought that he had everything right, that, you know, he just experienced the transfiguration, and, and he's been Jesus right there in the close-knit uh, disciples of Jesus, and that after all the wrong steps that the disciples have made, the wrong steps that Peter has made, that, that he finally was going to get something right. And so John said to him in verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. See, John thought he was right. But he was not. And John actually didn't get much better at understanding what it meant to be a follower of Jesus until much, much later. In chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus told them once again what was going to happen to him, that he was going to be mocked and spit upon and flogged and killed, and after three days he will rise. But John did not understand this. And you look at chapter 10, verse 35, and you'll read that James and John, they go to Jesus and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us what we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and what at your left in your glory. Daniel 7, right? That's what they want. And so they're so preoccupied with their status that so much more than what Jesus had been teaching them about the kingdom of God. But I think a lot of us can relate to John, where we think we're making progress in our understanding of Jesus just to find out that we're actually regressing. And we find ourselves thinking we're standing up for the things of Jesus when in actuality we're misrepresenting Jesus in what we say and what we do. It would be completely understandable if Jesus really let John have it and he just reprimanded him and laid into him for what he was trying to do, but he doesn't do that. Jesus completely understands that we're broken people and that we're in need of grace and that who we are now will not be who we end up being if we're humble enough for him to change us. Just look at Mark, uh, look at John in Mark chapter 3, verse 17. And I just kind of want to Look at him for a little bit here. It says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Now, how did they earn this nickname of Jesus? They, they had a very uh, spicy temperament, right? Um, I have one child who's, who's just really, really fierce. And my mom calls her the li little chili pepper in Chinese. There's this term that because she, she's really spicy. She's a spicy kid. She runs very hot if you bite into her. Like, and so I picture John being like this. Just a spicy, spicy guy. Now you look at Luke chapter 9, verse 54, with, with, which chronologically speaking is right after John stopped this guy from casting out the demons in Jesus' name. 
Now, let's start in Luke chapter 9, verse 49, so we have a better picture of this. Luke 9, verse 49, we're going to read through 55. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. So this is Luke's uh, account of this. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. See, Jesus rebuked them for that. He, he showed them so much grace in not understanding the kingdom of God, but when, when John and the others continually miss the mark, he continues to show them grace. It's when they want fire to come down and kill people. We're, we're so broken. We're, we're, we're so foul. But, but Jesus can change and does change us, doesn't he? Because you look at who John became. Here's the same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and became known as the Apostle of Love. And Jesus changed him from being the son of thunder to an Apostle of Love. See, God can change us. He can fix us. He can heal us. Even when we're severely broken, He can transform us from unrighteous people to righteous people. And it may seem like some people just can't change but God can change them. He changed John from son of thunder to apostle of love. Back to Mark's account, Mark 9, verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. Now this is really fascinating. It's fascinating that they wanted to stop a guy who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. Why is that? Because just a little while ago, remember when they came down from the transfiguration, there's a whole group of them, and they can't cast out a demon from a single boy? Remember that? That happened right before this. So I, I think that's part of the reason why the disciples wanted to stop this guy. Because he was doing something that they couldn't do just a short time ago, like, Hey, wait, we're the followers of Jesus. We're supposed to be the ones doing that sort of stuff. And now they're being called out on it because they can't even do a little boy. And this guy's doing the work that they're supposed to be doing. I, I get it. I, I get how they would feel about this. But then, like, who's this guy? He's not one of us. Now, other than knowing that he wasn't, he, that he wasn't following the group John was in, we don't, we don't know who this guy is. And somehow he heard about Jesus and, and was out doing ministry in Jesus' name, but we're not told who he was, and, and maybe he was one of John the Baptist's disciples or, or someone Jesus ministered to at some point or, or was one of the people who were present during Jesus' teachings. We, we simply don't know who this is. But Jesus considered him part of his team. He wasn't against them, so he was for them. Now you notice why, this, this, why, why the disciples told this guy to stop. Because he wasn't following them. He wasn't following them. 
Verse 38, right? It wasn't because he was doing something wrong or that he was, he was off in what he was doing. They, they were being territorial. And the disciples have a pretty good tracker, track record regarding this. Right? You look back to 934, chapter 9, verse 34. They had argued with one another about who was the greatest. In chapter 10, verse 37, James and John said to Jesus, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And then you jump down to verse 41 in chapter 10, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. These guys had rivalries with one another, and they were in competition with one another. They were territorial, and they kept jockeying for position as to who was with Jesus where. And it was bad enough that they were insecure with one another, but it also poured out toward others like this guy who was ministering to demon-possessed people when they couldn't. Whatever insecurities they had before within their own group, it was just magnified with this guy who was outside of their group. So, so that jealousy, that envy, that insecurity, that ugliness was really oozing out of John and out of these guys right now. There are many people doing wonderful things in Jesus' name. And we are in no place to judge their place in the kingdom of God. How are we getting in the way of people speaking against people who are not against Jesus? But we may find that we are against them. And that's not a good thing. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul experienced a bunch of people preaching Jesus Christ with all sorts of intentions. Some of them weren't very good intentions. It was done out of rivalry. It was done out of envy. But even though what they did wasn't out of pure and good motives, he still rejoiced that Jesus Christ was preached. And maybe the people we feel are problems in the work of Jesus, they really aren't. That person who is much more conservative or that person who is much more progressive than you are, is really on the same team you're on. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. Do you find that people who are the most extreme in their views seem to be the most uptight? Whether, whatever side it's on. They seem to be the most uptight. And that makes sense because if you pull a rubber band, who's, well, where is it the most kind of uptight? The ends, right? That's, that's just how it is. And do you find that people who seem to be the most defensive about their position on a particular matter are rarely defensive about the actual matter? Rather, it's, it's more about them. They make things sound very noble, very just, very righteous, but in reality, it's really all about them. There's an Old Testament example about this. It's found in Numbers chapter 11. 
Moses complained to God about how ungrateful and rebellious and and childish the Israelites were, and and God uh, addressed this by sending elders to assist Moses in serving the people. And so that's the background of the story. Let's pick this up in verse 24 of Numbers chapter 11. So Moses went out and told the people the word of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad. Very awesome names. And the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? See, Eldad and Medad weren't at this tent meeting. And they they stayed in the camp and they didn't go to the tent with the rest of the elders, but the spirit rested on them anyway. And they prophesied in the camp even though they didn't go to the tent anyway. And so this young man went to Moses to tattle on Eldad and Medad. I think they were just at home being dads or something. And so, which led to Joshua who's our John equivalent here in Mark chapter 9, to say to Moses, stop them. And here, here's Moses' reply in verse 29. Are you jealous for my sake? See, see, Joshua wasn't jealous for Moses' sake. It was his own jealousy problem. Right? They are not following us. They're over there. And Moses didn't see a problem with this. He said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put his spirit on them. That's great. Let everybody prophesy. Right? See, Joshua was just a little bit too territorial. He was too jealous. And, and this is how John was. Now, let's not take Mark chapter 9, verse 40 too far either. Right? Where it says, for, for the one who is not against us is for us. Now, some may interpret this as everyone who is not against Jesus is for Jesus, but That verse in itself does not give us a complete picture of what it means to be for or against Jesus. Let's look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 30. It reads this. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I hope that helps clarify things a little bit. It helps us to address any kind of universalistic postures that we may have regarding Jesus. Because you see, we're either for or against Jesus. There isn't a third option. But let's not try to dump everyone who is for Jesus into the against Jesus bucket when they're really for Jesus. Let's not be like John. Let's not be like Joshua. The guy casting out demons in Jesus' name... Eldad, Medad, we're all part of the same team. We're all part of the kingdom of God. Don't be so concerned about people not belonging to your tribe or belonging to your tribe. The real concern is whether they belong to Jesus. And just because you belong to an accepted tribe does not mean that your allegiance is with Jesus because you look at Judas. 
He was in that disciples group, but he was so far from the heart of God. And we can get so territorial, just as so many have throughout all of church history, and be in a group we think is so close to God, but have God within that group be so far from us. Let's not be so arrogant to think that we have the monopoly on how to be a follower of God, that that who we are and what we do as followers of Jesus is the best way to follow Jesus. Let's not be so narrow-minded and exclusive of whom we are. But let's not all go to the other extreme either where everything is fine and we're inclusive of everything because that's not what Jesus instructed either. The gospel unites us, and if there is a miraculous spiritual work that unites us, such as the casting out of demons, surely something as mundane, such as giving someone a cup of water to drink, simply because you belong to Christ will also unite us in Jesus' name. Verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Churches will do so much more gospel good together than we will as these smaller scattered tribes. We do so much better. And we can be so petty and so divisive over smaller things when the divisions in themselves that we've created are actually the bigger problem. That narrow-mindedness, that rigidity, that extreme exclusivism, which, which causes unnecessary division in the kingdom of God. I'm out of time, so I'll pray. (laughs) Lord, we ask that we would be given eyes to see those who are weak, needy, helpless, such as the child you used as the illustration in this story. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see where we are being exclusive where we are drawing lines of division when they aren't necessary to be drawn. I also ask God that you would give us discernment on the other extreme where Jesus, you don't turn out to be the Savior who died for our sins but more of just a universalist acceptance of a greater being. And not to cheapen that. So Lord, would you provide us with wisdom as we move forward in living in in this world that you've set us upon and to minister in this context here. In Jesus' name, amen.